I love that song. I, gotta just, I just got to tell you. The king is among us, and his glory surrounds us, and, rev- and his fire is falling as we sing. And the Savior is for us, amen? And his love is victorious, and revival is rising in his name. I, I love that song, and I, I love the truth that it, it proclaims, a truth that is at the very center of, of the Christmas season, God's great desire not only to to be among us, but God's great desire actually to live inside of us. Merry, merry, merry Christmas. Amen? And now for the month of December, uh, we're in this series of conversations that I'm calling Sea Tunes. Uh, Because as I said last week, that songs have been a part of Christmas from the very beginning. Songs at Christmas just seem to go hand in hand. I mean, can you think of another holiday that has so many songs and so much music that dominates the airways for such a long period of time. Now this morning we're going to look at another song from, from a guy who didn't write his first song till he was in his old age. Before we go there, I thought I'd show a little medley of, of Christmas music. This is pretty good. And you guys did great sing-along uh, last week. So if you know these songs, sing along, get up, jump around, have some fun. All right, let's go. <laughs> All right, Michael. All right. I'll tell you what, uh, he did really well. We got that on the first take this week. He did a great job. Really appreciate that. <laughs> Again, songs and Christmas um, just seem to go together. And I have no doubt there'll be more songs on the way, but I'm really becoming partial to the original Christmas tunes, like Mary's Song of Praise from last week. Uh, a sea tune that, that magnifies the Lord, proclaiming the good news of, of God's care. Uh, brothers and sisters, God takes notice of, God pays attention to, God is mindful of you. The good news of, of God's might. Nothing is impossible for our God. The good news of, of God's mercy. He delights in showing us mercy. And I'm so glad he does, right? Because I mess up every day. I don't know about you. The good news of God's way. He champions the cause of the weak and the humble, and he uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And the good news of God's promises. See, when it comes to promises, God always keeps his. Amen? Do not, amen? If you're vision, if I don't get love, you know, I, I can stretch it out. You know that, right? Okay. Okay. And the good news of, that God keeps his promises, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In, in my Father's house, there's many rooms, and, and I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go there to prepare a place for you, I will come back to get you so that you can be where I am forever. Amen? And God's going to keep that promise. And today, as we look at another original Christmas tune, we're going to approach our conversation the same way we did last week. We're going to talk about the writer, and then we're going to unpack the song. But let's go ahead and pray. Uh, Father God, we, we thank you for the opportunity to come into your presence. We thank you that uh, you love us, that you care about us. And that you're here with us, that you're among us, that you pay attention to us, that you know what we're going through, and that if we open our hearts, minds, and our ears, our eyes, that we will see you and hear from you this morning and you'll speak directly to us, a message of truth and power and encouragement. And God, I I pray that your word comes alive. I pray that you empower me to speak your word in a way that brings you honor and glory and points only to you. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Now, before we begin unpacking some verses in Luke chapter 1, we need to read some words from the prophet Malachi, or Malachi, as I like to call him, right? Okay, and, and because Zechariah's backstory actually begins 400 years before Zechariah was born. And I know that some of you woke up this morning, you said, you know what, I just want to hear some words from the prophet Malachi today. Well, I didn't want to disappoint you, right? Here it is. Uh, understand, our, our God is a sovereign God. He rules over times, over nations, over languages, over cultures, over races, over classes. He is working out everything according to his plan. What he says will happen, has happened, and will always happen. In fact, throughout scriptures, we see God predicting and declaring the future through his prophets. And one of those occasions is in the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, chapters 3 and 4. And listen, this word from Malachi will be the final word that God will speak to his people until we pick up the story in Luke chapter 1, 400 years later. So Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, we see the beginning of Zechariah's backstory. As the sovereign king of the universe says, look, I'm sending my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Again, God is speaking. He said, I'm coming, but before I come into human history, a messenger, a preacher, a prophet will come and he will proclaim and announce my coming. Then the Lord you're seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you look for so eagerly is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Now, this is an Old Testament prophecy about Zechariah's son, who was John the Baptist, who was coming as a messenger to prepare the way for the coming of Christ the Messiah. And once John prepared the way for Jesus, which he did, then Jesus will appear in the temple. And Malachi ends his book by saying the following words about Zechariah's son. Look, I'm setting you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. In other words, uh, uh, the prophet John the Baptist would bring about a time of great revival among God's people. And after Malachi proclaims this message, this truth, there are 400 years of silence. No book of the Bible is written, no prophet speaks. And many begin to wonder if God's provision has left the nation forever. And one generation to the next becomes a little more stiff-necked, a little more hard-hearted, a little more cold-hearted, and people are not walking with God as they should. Yes, there's a remnant, a, a few, who are seriously devoted to God, but it's still 400 years of silence. Then everything begins to change in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judah, and this will be the guy that history knows as Herod the Great. Uh, he, he was a, a puppet king of the, the Roman Empire. He was a very wicked and cruel, crafty politician. Um, he was not a godly man, did not love God, did not love God's people. And he's the same Herod that Matthew says actually ordered the murder of all male babies under the age of two in order to try to kill Jesus. So this is the setting, the times of Herod, for the greatest event in human history, the coming of Christ. One commentary I read this week said the following, Herod's world was cruel, materialistic, hateful, exploitive, cynical, and filled with despair. Hmm, sound like any place you know of? The Jewish people suffer much at the hands of the rulers. When Herod and Rome were not oppressing them, their own religious leaders were. The religious life of the Jews, an integral part of their social and political life, had lost its vitality and helpfulness. 
The Pharisees had made their traditions a burden almost impossible to bear, and the Sadducees were using religion to amass a personal fortune. Now, it sure didn't look like a time when anything great or significant would happen. In fact, most people had given up hope. And when it came to faith and following God, they thought, hey, why bother, right? I mean, why bother following God? Why doing things the right way? Because it doesn't seem to make any difference in the way things turn out in my life. Ever felt that way? However, there was still a faithful remnant. We're about to meet two of them. There was a Jewish priest named Zechariah, who was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commands and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very what? Very old. Turn the person right left and say, no, we won't do that this week. <laughs> Especially you may say that to me. Very old, right? They're very old. In other words, that, you know, they're, from a human perspective, when it came to having a child, that ship sailed a long, long time ago. And speaking of sailing, I have to give props to Army. Good job, Army, on meeting Navy last week, all right? Good job, good job. 2001's a long time. You deserved it. I really actually want Army to win, kind of. Um, but next year, I want Navy to win. But good job. Okay, one, one day, Zachariah was serving God in the temple, for his order was on duty that week. And as was the custom of the priest, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. And so what do these verses tell us about our writer? You know, quite a lot, actually. And listen, the things they tell us about Zechariah are the reasons why God chose to include him in the Christmas story, right? Does anybody remember the two qualities about Mary that rose to the top and allowed God to unleash his favor in her life? She had, what kind of spirit? Anybody remember? She had a humble spirit, and she had a faith without borders, right? You know, she actually believed that God would do what he said. Okay, so what do you know about Zechariah? He's an elderly priest or pastor, right? And his wife Elizabeth was not only a, a pastor's wife, she came from a pastor's family. And they're both, again, very old, well advanced in years, well beyond the age of barren children. And listen, emotionally, this is devastating. And financially, this is actually dangerous. You see, unlike in our day, there were no Social programs, there was no assisted living centers, no Social Security, no Medicare. And so when you got older, your children, and specifically your sons, would look after you. And therefore, you know, having no sons, no children, equaled a very great danger for these two elderly people. Zachariah was an old guy. And listen, it's here that we see one of my favorite truths of Scripture. He's an old guy. He thinks his time is up, but we find out in his life that it's never too late to be used by God. Amen? Turn to the person to your right and left and tell them, look him in the eye. It's never too late to be used by God. Uh, understand, no matter how old you are, uh, no matter the road that you have traveled, no matter how many opportunities you have screwed up, it is never too late if you're breathing. If you're not breathing, raise your hands. We'll send someone over to you, right? It's never too late to be used by God. Zachariah is also a righteous guy. Zachariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all the Lord's commands and regulations. 
The righteous in whose eyes? In God's eyes. Careful to do what? Obey all the commands. Not, Not just the ones they like, right? Not just the comfortable ones, the convenient ones, the fun ones, but they obeyed everything that God said. Third, he was a faithful servant. I understand, even though things did not go the way that he wanted them to go, even though that their prayers went unanswered, they did not turn their backs on God. God, we know you're the one who can open and close the womb. God, we believe in you. We believe the Bible. We believe that you can. And if you would give us a son, that would be incredible. We would love to be parents. But if not, we're still going to love you, and we're still going to serve you. And that's what they did. I mean, they're in their 80s, and they're still in ministry. They're still serving, and they're still worshiping God. Luke continues. One day when Zechariah was serving God in the temple, for his order was on duty that week, and notice it says he was serving God at the temple, right? You know, when you're serving at church, that's who you're serving, right? You know, you're not serving people. Like down that wing right there, we have awesome people every week that work in children's ministry. They're not really serving the kids, and they're not really serving the parents. They're serving God, you know? And so whenever you serve, remember who you're serving, right? And when you serve with all your heart, when you do the best you can, God is always pleased with you. And let me say this, they can always use your help down that wing, right? Children's ministry, no matter where you are, you can be a church of 50 or a church of 50,000, right? You always need people to help in children's ministry. We have a connection card. If you'd like to find out how to do that, we'd, I'm sure my wife would love to have you um, join her team. As was the custom of the priest, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. While the incense was burning, a great crowd stood outside praying. And here, here's a, a rendition of the temple. Now, during this time, there were 20,000, 21,000 priests divided up into 24 divisions of about 900 each. And each of these divisions of these 900 guys got to serve at the temple for a full week twice a year. And what they would do every year is they would roll dice, right? They would roll dice, and whosoever name came up, right, would be the one who got to go in and serve. And once you did it one time, that was it. You never got to do it again. They called you holy and blessed. And so that's what happened. And every year, Zechariah, for maybe, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years, he goes to Jerusalem, they roll the dice, loser, loser, loser. He never gets picked. I mean, he's like the guy in gym class. He never gets picked. And now he's getting pretty old. And he's starting to wonder, will I ever get picked? Because some guys never do get picked. Will it ever happen? Will I ever get to serve God the way... I want to serve God. And then one day they roll the dice. Zechariah, it's your turn. So he goes into the holy place. He throws some incense on the altar. And the people will be outside, down on their knees, with their hands in the air, praying. And what the incense symbolized was the prayers of God's people. In Revelation 5, 8, it says that there's this, in God's presence, there's this huge golden bowl. Right now, it's there. You know, and that when we pray, our prayers go into this huge golden bowl that's in heaven. What a beautiful picture of prayer, right? I mean, right now, you, th- you throw up a prayer to God, no matter how long, how short, whether you use King James English or not, right? There's this, there's this bowl, and your prayers are there right before the living and sovereign God. So this is this big moment. It's a one-shot deal. 
He closes his eyes, he prays, opens his eyes, and here's what happens. While Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. And again, not cute little cuddly angels, but some big, massive, scary dude, right? And they're, they're very scary. And whenever anybody sees an angel, they're always afraid. That's why the first words out of the angel's mouth are always what? Don't what? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard what? He's heard your prayer. That's right. He's 80 and he's still praying. He's 80 and he's still praying for that child. He's 80 and he's still praying for that son. Is it okay to keep asking God? Absolutely. No problem at all. Jesus said, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. So Zechariah, he, he keeps asking. And the angel says, your wife Elizabeth will give you a son. And you're to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. And the name John means the Lord is gracious. I don't know about you, but I love watching God move in the lives of people, especially faithful people who remain faithful even though every script they wrote for their lives and sent up to God, God sent down with the revision, Right? Hey, I know you want life to work this way, but here's how life is going to work out for you. And then Luke continues, for he'll be great in the eyes of the Lord. He'll be great in God's eyes. And this is good. I mean, Herod thinks he's something special, right? I mean, when you call yourself Herod the Great, right? I mean, you think you're special. But the angel says, no, 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 not really. John will be great. Sure, Herod will... We'll make more money, build more buildings, subjugate more people, have more power, more followers, but he won't give his life to humbly serving the Lord, and your son will, therefore he will be the truly great one. And here's, here's a point I want you to get. We, we must constantly and continually fight the temptation to let greatness be defined by the world's standards and by People like Herod, right? Don't let the world define greatness for you. Well, here's greatness, right? If you make this much money, if you have this much education, if this kind of job, you live in this neighborhood, you drive this kind of car, right? You know, you know that, that, don't let the world define greatness. We've got to fight that temptation. If you love God and you serve God and you walk faithfully with God, doing and going whatever he asks you, wherever he asks you to do or wherever he asks you to go, you are great in the sight of God. And the truth is, his eyes are the only eyes that really matter, right? His opinion, his definition of you, how God sees you is the only thing that determines true greatness. I love it. Zachariah is no one from nowhere, doing in the eyes of the world nothing. And God says, I heard your prayers. Here comes your son. He will be grace to you and he'll be great in my eyes. And may that be said of all of us and all of our children, our children's children, that we are great, not necessarily in the eyes of the world, right? I mean, don't you want God to look at your sons and your daughters, right, and your grandchildren and say, hey, they're great in my eyes. Who cares what the world says, right? Because the world applauds, right? They'll applaud you one minute and crucify you the next, right? Right? But in God's eyes. He must never touch wine or alcoholic drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even before his birth, and he'll turn many Israelites to the Lord, their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. 
who will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. This sounds familiar. A little Malachi coming at you again. And it will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. Zechariah said to the angel, how can I be sure this is going to happen? I'm an old man now. And my wife, eh, she ain't no spring chicken either, right? I'm too old. We're too old. It's too late. A much different response than Mary, right? When Mary, this 14-year-old girl, hears an angel say, you're going to have a, a son as a virgin, right? And, and, and she, she doesn't get it, doesn't understand it physiologically, but she says, her response was, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said, right? And, 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 and then Elizabeth says to her, you're blessed because you believe that God would do what he says. So he doesn't really believe it right now. Then the angel said, I love this. I think he's getting bowed up right now. When an angel bows up, that's not good. I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. And it's he who sent me to bring you this good news. In other words, bro, are you kidding me? Seriously. You're not believing me? But now, since you didn't believe what I said, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. For my words will be certainly fulfilled at their proper time. So if you're taking notes today, note to self, if a huge angel appears to you and tells you that something incredible is going to happen, just say, awesome, can't wait to see it, right? You see, God didn't like it when Zechariah doubted his message. And he doesn't like it when you and I doubt his message either. Understand, God always keeps his word. He always delivers on what he promises, regardless of how outlandish or extreme the promise may seem on the surface. I mean, when God speaks, mountain ranges fall into place. When God speaks, the universe comes into existence. When God speaks, as we read in Psalm 104 this week, when God speaks, the world is put on its foundation. The sun is told when it rises and sets, and the seas are told just how far they can go. Now, that's our God. How can we ever doubt him? Now, Zechariah stayed in the temple for so long that people are starting to worry. Like, hey, did the old guy fall? Did he have a heart attack? But finally he comes out, and he, and he, and he tries to tell them what happened in the temple. By using jesters. And, and, and this is the very first game of charades ever played, right? He ain't talking, he's like, he comes out there. And he's like, what, what, what's going on? Oh, what, what are you saying? Oh, somebody's pregnant. Who's pregnant? Oh, Elizabeth, how can that be, right? It's charades. And Luke continues. When his time of service was completed, I really like that. You know, he, he finished his job. He, he, he fulfilled his commitment. He said, well, you know, hey, I got a higher calling <laughs> from God. I, I don't have time for these lowly tasks of normal God followers. No, he completed his service. He fulfilled his commitment. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he's looked upon me with favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. 
And so for five months, she's just worshiping God, rubbing her belly, making baby blankets, setting up the nursery, and praising God that she has a mute husband, right? <laughs> she wins every argument, right? That would be, that'd be, that'd be pretty good, right? You ever wish you had a mute button? For, <laughs> never mind. Hey, let's off. Sorry. Okay, that's really weak. All right, let's fast forward five months to Luke chapter 1, verse 57. When it's time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and they shared her joy. And I'm sure that this elderly couple, having a child this late in life and knowing of an, a visit from an angel and his being mute for nine months created quite a stir in the town. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. Now, who's the they? It isn't the mom and dad, right? Because they already knew his name was supposed to be John. Everybody else wants to name him. And yes, as strange as it sounds to us, they were having a huge party and a celebration involving the circumcision of her child. We don't do that today, right? We don't have parties for circumcision, but back then they did, right? A, a, a circumcision celebration they had going on. And Why? And because circumcision was a big deal to Israel, it identified them as one of God's people. So they want to name him Zechariah, but, but his mom spoke up and said, no, he's to be called John. And they said to her, wait a second, there's nobody in your family who has that name. Why are you naming him John? And then they go over to the dad. And this is game of rage number two. They're forgetting he can hear, right? He, he just can't speak. And so they gesture to him to find, hey, what do you want to name him? And they bring, him, uh, they bring him this wooden tray that is covered with wax, and he takes out a tool, and he writes this phrase on it. His name is John. And the word John, again, mean, name John means what? The Lord is gracious. And that's a perfect name for Zachariah and Elizabeth's son. Immediately his mouth was open, his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe. And throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone heard this wonderful uh, everyone heard this, wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he gave this prophecy. After nine months, his silence is broken, and more than that, after 400 years, God's silence is broken, and once again, God speaks his word to his people. And here's his song. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he's come to his people and redeemed them. He has sent us a mighty Savior from the royal line of his servant David, just as he promised through the Holy Spirit, holy prophets long ago. Now we'll be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. He has been merciful to our ancestors by remembering his sacred covenant, the covenant he swore with an oath to our ancestor Abraham. We have been rescued from our enemies so we can serve God without fear and holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. And you, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. With the loving mercy of our God, a new day from heaven will dawn upon us. It will shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death. It will guide us into the path of peace. And so the child grew up and became strong in spirit. John lived in the desert until the time when he came out to preach to Israel. 2,000 years ago, after 400 years of silence, God fills, Holy Spirit fills Zechariah and in his first song, he tells us what Christmas is about. Number one, Christmas is about God's story, not our story. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he's come to his people and redeemed them. God's story, not our story. You know, it would have been easy for Zechariah 
to try to make this story all about him and his new son. I mean, this is a day that he waited for, prayed for, and hoped for for decades, to hold his own son in his arms. And you'll notice in the 12 verses that make up his song, he only talks about his son twice. And both of those times, his son is not even the main character, but instead, the Lord is the main character. And like I said before, the main character is critical to any story. In fact, the main character can make or break a story. One of my favorite ways to illustrate this is, here's a picture of a main character in a movie. Anybody know who this guy is? Right? Right? Macaulay Culkin, right? Main character in Home Alone 2. Great main character, right? Okay? Okay? He would not be a great main character in this movie. Main character, right? Russell Crowe, right? You know, could you imagine Macaulay Culkin being that character? Or could you imagine Home Alone 2 when the guys break in? It's Russell Crowe, right? Let me tell you, all I know is that we would not be entertained, right, by that, right? It would not entertain us. And, and here's what I'm trying to say. We could be an excellent supporting element in God's story, but we make a lousy main character. You make a lousy main character. And i tell you what, when your life is all about you and my life is all about me, it don't work out so good, right? But how can you be bummed out about your life if it's not about your life, Right? if it's about something bigger, if it's about a bigger story. See, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's God's story, not your story. And listen, when that little baby grew up to be John the Baptist, he so got this. In John chapter 3, John's ministry, more people are going to Jesus' church than John's church, and the people at John's church are, are a little bit concerned, right? Like, hey, they're all going over to Jesus. And John says, it is the bridegroom who marries the bride. And the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear her vows. Hear his vows. Therefore, I'm filled with joy at his success. He must become what? Greater. And I must become what? I must become less. Right? It's not your story. It's God's story. And as believers, it's not supposed to be about our story anymore. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15, we read this. Some of you read it this week. He died for everyone. So that those who receive his new life will what? No longer live for ourselves, right? No longer live for our agenda, our wants, our desires. They will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. 2,000 years ago in the original Christmas tune, Zacharias sings a song that tells what Christmas is about. It's about God's story, not our story. Next, it's about God's timing, not our timing. He has sent us a mighty Savior from the royal line of his servant David, just as he promised to his holy prophets long ago, now we'll be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. And this week when I I read these three words, um, long ago and now, this timing thing really jumped out at me because long ago and now are, are words that involve time. You see, Israel had been waiting for the Messiah for a couple of thousand years. And like a small child at Christmas, I'm sure they were saying, is it time yet? Is it time yet? Is the Messiah here yet? Is it here yet? Is it here yet? Can we open up the Messiah gift yet? And listen, many times in their history, I bet they thought this has got to be the right time, right? When we're slaves in Egypt, when we're in exile in Babylon and Persia. But God waited because his timing is not their timing. You see, God knew that the perfect time for the Messiah to come in all of human history would be first century Palestine. Paul said this in Galatians 4.4. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. Now, we may pick a time like today, right? Let's pick today, right? 
Man, you got social media, right? Christ should come today. That would be the perfect time. But here's why, here's four reasons why first century Palestine was the perfect time. Uh, you got a universal language, right? Greek. All throughout the Roman Empire, everybody spoke the same language, right? They all spoke the Greek language. Another thing, you had the Roman roads, right? And Rome built some phenomenal roads, many are in existence today, which made travel much easier. Then you have what is called the Pax Romana, which means the Roman peace. From 27 BC to 180 AD, Rome experienced a tremendous amount of peace throughout the entire empire, right? So you could travel and, and, and not be threatened along the way. And, and fourth, and this is a, a big one, it was a growing disillusionment among the people. They were finding out that, you know what, philosophy is not working. It's not answering the questions of life. Uh, religion is not working. You know, power is not working, right? The government is not the answer. You know, money's not the answer. Power's not the answer. Philosophy's not the answer. Education's not the answer. These things are proven to be inadequate to answer the questions to the meaning and purpose of life. It kind of sounds like today, right? You know, many people, whenever those things exist, this growing disillusionment, it's a prime time for the gospel. It's God's timing, not our timing. Get it? Good. But nevertheless, I still struggle with God's timing. Like an impatient child waiting for Christmas, I want what I want when I want it. And that would be right now. Why do I have to wait, God? Why do I have to keep on struggling? No, God's timing is not our timing. But it's always perfect. Listen, God's never late. And God is never early. He's always right on time. Always right on time. There is a time for everything. And a season for every activity under the heavens. Time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. He has made everything perfect in our time. Uh-uh. Everything perfect in its time and his time. And, and here's what I'm trying to say. Don't, don't let God's timing cause you to doubt God's promises. Right? I mean, God's made some great promises. And you're like, okay, when's it happening, God? I'm not seeing it happening. Don't let God's timing cause you to doubt his promises, right? His promise is true. And our God will come through always. Amen? Christmas is about God's gift, not our effort. In the song, Zechariah says that, that God redeems, God rescues, God saves, God forgives, God pours out his mercy. It's his gift, not our effort. And that's good news, right? Aren't you glad it's not by your effort that you get this gift? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it's by grace that you have been saved through faith. It's by grace. And this is not from yourselves. It is what? It's the gift of God. Grace. God's unmerited favor. Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense, right? Not by works so that no one can boast. See, Christmas is not about what we do or don't do. It's about Jesus Christ has already done. It's about his gift, not our effort. It's about his timing, not our timing. It's about his story, not our story. And it's about God's purposes, not our agenda. And I really love this next part of a Zachariah song because I, I kind of picture him. And in first service, Andrew was back there holding his baby, Gabriel. But I kind of picture Zachariah the whole time he's singing this part of the song that, that he's looking at the people telling them this, right? And, and then, right now, he begins, as he wraps up, he begins to look down at his own son in his arms. 
And I, I picture maybe a, a tear, at least in the corner, maybe streaking down his face. And he says, and you, my little son, I never thought you'd be here. Never thought I'd be holding you. Will be called the prophet of the Most High because you'll prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins. It's about God's purpose, it's not our agenda. And, and, and that's exactly how, how John lived. Mark chapter 1, verse 4, we read this. And so John the Baptist, that, that Zachariah's son, the one Malachi talked about, and so Malachi. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Yes, your life, my little son, is about God's purpose, is not your agenda. My little son, you're you're to speak of him, you're to point to him, you're to prepare the way for him, and you're to tell people how to find salvation in him. And and that's, that's our purpose too, right? We're to speak of him, we're to point people to him, right? We're to prepare the way for him, and we're to tell people, right, especially our ones, right? You got a one you're praying for? Lord, give me one person that I can share your love with today, right? You know, uh, you know and we're to tell people how they can find salvation in him. And now check out the final line in Zechariah's tune. Christmas is about God's new day, not darkness's old day. He says, with the loving mercy of our God. And, and I just got to hit the pause button real quick here. Because when it comes to mercy, I'm going to tell you two things about it. Number one, you do not appreciate God's mercy the way you should. You are a sinner. You think evil thoughts. You say evil things. And you do evil things every day. And so do I. I mean, you know, how many times do you sin in a day, right? Man, you can't even count them. And yet God does not treat you as your sin deserves, right? And yet God's mercy is new every morning. So number one, I think we need to appreciate mercy more, right? Paul says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, let us present our bodies, right, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. The second thing about mercy is, is we don't give mercy enough, right? God loves to give mercy, and he wants us to give mercy, right? He wants us to treat people you know, not as their sins against us deserve. Anybody find that hard? I do. I do. With the loving mercy of our God, a new day from heaven will dawn upon us. It will shine on those who live in darkness, in the shadow of death. It will guide us into the path of peace. See, Christmas is about God's new day. It's about, it's about his loving mercy. It's about, it's about this light. It's about Jesus who shines on us. It's about this light of Jesus that the darkness cannot, will not, and never will be able to overcome that light. It's about this light that will guide us into the path of peace. Could you use some peace? Some real peace in your life? And the crazy thing is, you know, when Zechariah says this, right? This is going to happen, this light's going to shine. It's still 30 years before Jesus' ministry. At the time, Jesus is three months old in the womb. And this morning, I went on a website called JustMommies.com. You know, I didn't know it even existed, right? But I was wanting to find out, hey, like, how much does a three-month-old baby in the womb, how much does it weigh? You know? So as he's saying this, Jesus is three to four inches long. That's Jesus, like God's God. And he weighs one ounce, right? 
Yet Zechariah is saying, hey, you know, this is going to happen. This light's going to come. You know, and the darkness will never be able to overcome it. And those who live in that light will have a peace that passes understanding and have a hope that is living. Mary, 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 Merry Christmas. Amen.